Welcome to the Digital Mindfulness Podcast. I'm Lawrence Ampofo, and this is episode number 10. Welcome to the Digital Mindfulness Podcast, where experts from around the world will share their insights and ideas on the various ways that we can create more meaningful and beneficial digital experiences. You'll hear insights from neuroscientists, user experience designers, TEDsters, psychologists, technology professionals, and other experienced mentors who will share their insights with you. My guest this week is the author Tom Chatfield. Tom has published books such as How to Thrive in a Digital Age, Fun Incorporated, Activism or Slacktivism, 50 Ideas You Really Need to Know, and Netimology. Tom is also a TEDster, having spoken at TED Global in 2010 with a talk entitled Seven Ways Games Reward the Brain. He's also a fellow at the Said Business School at Oxford and a fellow at the School of Life in London. Enjoy this episode with Tom Chatfield. Great. So, Tom, thank you so much for coming on to the Digital Mindfulness Podcast with me today. Um, I've done all my reading about you. I've taken a look at um, all of the different books that you've published, but I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. How did you come to be interested in the impact of video games and the digital age on people more generally? Well, I started, I guess, and thank you for having me very much. Um, I started by caring about all the very old stuff, you know, by caring about sort of literature and books and history and, you know, what people had been and done. And I was doing a, a doctorate writing about you know, literature and philosophy. And I became more and more aware that all of these, you know, sort of questions that go back through thousands of years of civilization, all of them are sort of playing out now in a digital age. All of this stuff is mediated by technology. It doesn't mean that, you know, technology is the answer, that technology is everything. I think that's a common sort of mistake made when talking about, you know, what it means to live well and have good experiences and so on. But I felt that, you know, from the written word to the whole business of, you know, sort of debating and deciding policy and elections and, and making art, you know, almost every single aspect of this now, there is in digital mediation going on. Um, these things must live in a world that has been profoundly transformed by the sort of limitless capacities and accelerated speeds and massive extended involvement associated with digital technologies so you know that's kind of vague but um i you know i embrace the vagueness so i have set out to you know to try and explore this in different ways and to try and as i think you do 
help people think a little bit more kind of richly and in a more connected way about how technology impacts upon the other areas of their lives and, and what it means to, to use technology well. So um, you were talking about your doctorate and how you focused on literature and history, sorry, philosophy, um, and how you saw through that that the digital world was was mediating life, as it were. Could you give an example just of that, just for the for the audience? How is how is kind of like life playing out through technology? Well, one of the really big things for me, you know, it becomes very obvious if you study you know, literature, if you study kind of literature and writing, you know, you're studying things that have been written down and sort of passed down through the ages. That's incredibly obvious. But, you know, you only have to go back 70 years to find that the majority of the world's adult population were not functionally literate. 70 years ago. So they didn't get to take part in this kind of great, preserved, continuing conversation about stuff, about, you know, history, about philosophy, politics, ideas. They still lived in an oral world and other people spoke and wrote on their behalf. And, you know, that's one great revolution. Math literacy is, you know, within a human lifetime. But then kind of on the back of this, we suddenly have mass participation in written and preserved culture just really in the last kind of 20, 25 years. So on Earth now, 7 billion people and about 7 billion mobile phones. They're not all smartphones, but most of them will be soon. And, you know, most human beings alive are connected in some way, are participating even if only through text messages and photographs mm. participating in what you might call kind of shared preserved human culture mm. and i just think this is an astonishing shift in all kinds of ways you know we talk all the time about you know sort of established gatekeepers like publishers and news organizations and filmmakers sort of being shunted aside and we worry perhaps rightly about their loss of revenues and the loss of business models and the kind of opening of the floodgates. But on a fundamental level, you know, the opening of the, of the floodgate, which says that most people in some form, even people in sub-Saharan Africa, say, mm -hmm. where there are now more mobile phones than there are in Europe, precisely because if you don't have paved roads or sanitation or regular electricity, having access to a very basic mobile phone is, is transforming for you as a sort of agent in the world. You know, this, this mass participation um, is kind of stunning. So, um, wow, thank you for that, Tom. So, I mean, I read your book um, with great interest, The How to Thrive in a Digital Age, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. Um, was it this journey that we were just discussing, was it this journey that motivated you to write it, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the journey was me trying to work out a way of talking about technology that wasn't just kind of making a fetish of the software and the hardware that wasn't just talking about shiny crazy stuff and then sort of pretending that you know there's a revolution happening every every few days and that everything old is no longer relevant mm. um, i was you know quite inspired by classical philosophy by um sort of aristotle um and neo Aristotelian philosophy um, in that they ask this question, you know, what does it mean to 
What does it mean to thrive at being human? The, the word that Aristotle used is eudaimonia, which means sort of being the most we can be. It means achieving some kind of excellence as a human being. And I think, you know, too often we end up just saying, you know, how can I use this tool in front of me rather than asking what might it mean for this tool or service to, you know, to be a part of something positive in my life for me to use it to thrive rather than just survive. So I'm being a bit abstract here, but I think, you know, one concrete example I often use is around something like email, um, which sounds, you know, very kind of trivial and simple. But I think for a lot of people in their jobs and lives, email is a fairly tyrannical master. It is something that sucks up an enormous amount of time. And that, from a certain angle, exists in order to make you send more email. You know, you reply instantly, there's no costs or time delays attached to it. You copy everybody in, you use attachments, you use autoresponders. So, you know, for many people, their email inbox is like a to-do list written for them by other people. And as I think more and more people are realizing, this is not a very good way of working, the kind of behaviors that sort of email encourages, the kind of things, if you like, that email wants you to do, they are not necessarily the things you want to do. And if there's a fundamental theme in the book, it's the idea that today, through technology, we are enmeshed in a lot of very kind of complicated systems, a lot of which have either arisen by kind of happenstance or been designed, you know, like Facebook et al., in order to make us do certain things that are profitable for the people who own them. And so there is a negotiation between what the system wants us to do and what we want to do and, you know, what it means to just use a system and kind of go along with its defaults, but then what it means to negotiate with it and perhaps come up alongside other people with better modes of practice, with a critical discerning engagement with the ability to say no rather than yes, with, in the case of email, the ability not simply to be in this sort of twitchy, nervous, constantly distracted default of sending email everywhere and anywhere because you are always on and everything happens through email, and instead to push back, to establish more control in your life, more boundaries, more protocols, other ways of doing things, to ask questions about, well, you know, is this actually helping me do this job manage this relationship, think my thoughts as well as I possibly could? Or are there you know, other things that I have got to bring to this if I want to do more than survive, if I want to thrive? I was just going to ask, actually, if for you, the definition here of the word thrive or um, in the Aristotelian phrase, um, eudaimonia, is that in a digital age kind of conscious autonomy rather like taking agency away from email and from social networks then making us do things to actually taking that agency away and saying this is how i'm going to use it i think that's a useful way of thinking about it yes and you know one of the points that comes out of a lot of the great writing and research that's been done around cognitive psychology, cognitive bias and behavior and so on in the last few decades is the fact that if you like our conscious will, um, our sort of rational self is a finite and easily exhausted resource Mm. that, you know, we don't have some kind of constant perfect rational control 
over our own actions. Far from it. You know, this wouldn't have been news to Freud, of course, or anyone interested remotely in myths or arts or human history. But that, you know, we are very easily bamboozled and depleted and manipulated. And that in order to, you know, take control, we need to become very aware of the biases sort of baked into the systems we use. And if we wish to achieve autonomy, if we wish to be more free, if we wish to be better at being ourselves, we need, you know, not just to sort of fight lots of tiny, exhausting little battles, but to build habits and routines, patterns of behavior, patterns of interaction and so on that, you know, that help us free ourselves and that help us expend our efforts where where they will actually where they will actually bring benefits to us. Mm. And, you know, one kind of minor point here for me is what I think of as the sort of dangerous myth of the neutral tool. And by this I mean the phrase I often find used around technology when people say it's just a tool. The computer's just a tool. The iPhone is just a tool. It's all about how well you use it. And I think that's a very tempting idea. Just educate people and, you know, it's kind of up to them they, um, it's up to them to go and use this neutral tool well, you know, let them get on with it. And in fact, I think this is a total lie. There's no such thing as a neutral tool ever. If I want to kill you, a gun is much more effective than a tiny toy train. If I want to, you know, sort of send lots of email very fast, um, an iPhone is much more effective than a 1984 BBC Micro. Um, and sort of rather more subtly, you know, there are, you know, pressures incurred into all these systems we use. And it is not just about sort of willing yourself into autonomy. It's partly, I think, your autonomy is only sort of meaningful and powerful if you really try to recognize how much you are constrained as to how much pressure and constraint surrounds you and as to really how difficult it is to achieve in a sort of autonomy as to how much of an achievement freedom is, freedom from certain pressures as well as freedom to do certain things. Um, and this is where I'm very inspired by um, thinkers like uh, Michael Sandel, who's written on justice and so on, who I think, in a sort of, it's always about degrees of freedom, the degrees of freedom you enjoy and trying to make yourself more free and trying to have a fuller autonomy in your life requires you know a, a humbleness i guess in the face of your own limitations and an honesty in facing up to the degree to which you are pressurized and constrained by the you know, sort of systems and the situations around you mm. this sounds a lot to me like you're saying that an, in, an enhanced um, awareness you no know, greater awareness from people of the effects of these technologies or how we're using technology is required in order to thrive, as it were. And certainly this issue of awareness is something that you focus a lot on in your forthcoming book, Live This Book. That's correct, yes, and thank you for the plug. That is um, a new book I've done, which is a kind of counterpoint to some more, I suppose, academic writing I'm doing. It's a, it's a kind of sort of philosophical journal com- commonplace book. Um, it has 100 exercises in it, and it's a, it's a physical-only book. It's hopefully quite a sort of beautiful, attractive, uh, diary-like book that you carry around with you and, in an old-fashioned way, with a pen, scribble in, in response to a hundred kind of prompts. And 
the thinking behind this was that time is this one quantity of which all the technology in the world cannot conjure a single particle more. And in the age of what some people call attention economics, you know, where your time is someone else's money and everybody is competing harder and more skillfully than ever to win your attention, how you spend your time and your attention is an absolutely crucial question. And, you know, for a lot of people, I think they can feel their lives flattening into, if you like, a single kind of slightly distracted time where, you know, the, the phone is in the pocket, the tablet is in the bag, the screen is on in the background. Mm. And this is not bad as such. This is not technology being evil. There is immense opportunity and privilege associated with this, you know, this kind of availability of information. But I think more and more people need help in carving out different kinds and qualities of time and attention in their lives. They need tools and habits that help them pay some undivided attention to other people in their lives, to spend some undivided attention asking questions about you know what really matters to them and what they care about and what they think and you know giving themselves license to unplug if you like and let their minds wander and also you know let the things that they do on a daily basis you know kind of percolate through memory and self and you know become something that really belongs to them and so I'm as a writer I embrace technology. I am a very promiscuous user of, you know, sort of social media and online research, and that informs my work. I'm immensely grateful for it. But I do quite a lot longhand as well. I print out, I use pads, not, I think, because I'm sentimental, but because it helps give me just a broader gamut of times and textures. It helps me, I hope, know my own thinking a little better, formulate stuff that that I feel really belongs to me. And so, you know, the book is almost a kind of hunch and an experiment, really, that I feel there's something really worthwhile that one can help people bring into their lives as a habit and kind of license or permission to turn off other stuff, to explore things. And there's exercises in the book that, for example, encourage people to kind of write out longhand favorite tweets, to take a selfie and then write a freehand description of it and try and sketch it to, you know, to try and effectively hack the disposability of some aspects of digital culture. And, you know, the book is a physical tool, but of course there are plenty of, you know, digital tools and experiences out there that are all about, you know, giving people richer textures of time and experience as well. I'm, you know, I would not for a moment say that, you know, sort of paper good, screen's bad, but there are profound differences here and there. And I think, you know, we need something of that difference and variety in our lives if we are to you know, to live as deeply as possible, to suck out the marrow of life, in um, Thoreau's phrase, I I, um, I I really like that, and I think that this speaks very much to your journey. I think in terms of your body of work, um, because anybody who's seen um, your TED talk, for example, and has read Fun Inc. Fun Incorporated, um, has seen your thesis on how actually technology can be used to um, enhance 
the better parts of being human in terms of collaboration, etc. Um, and now it seems that you're kind of focusing on this idea of, di- of um, blending the different approaches together, almost that technology has its place. And then there is also a space that we need to unplug, to listen to our own thoughts, to engage with our own creativity. Yes, and I think I've always been fascinated by games, partly because they're so fundamental, and partly because, you know, when someone is playing a game, there's a certain honesty involved. You can't tell someone they're having fun. They're either having fun or or they're not. It's a bit like humour. I can't tell you a joke and then tell you it's funny and explain why it's funny and make you make you laugh um, and so you know I, I was always very interested in games because of this certain honesty and also because they totally give the lie to the idea that what people want is everything to be easy and simple and kind of trivial and straightforward in a sense video games especially but games in general are all about artificial difficulty they're about putting artificial obstacles and constraints in front of people so that they can experience the satisfaction of overcoming obstacles, of gaining skills, of competing, of being challenged. There's a rather troubling irony for me in the fact that for, I think, quite a few people, the kind of challenges they experience in you know, a classic game like World of Warcraft, or even in the exercise of sort of skill and effort involved in getting through 500 levels of Candy Crush, that that is more emotionally satisfying to them and more fulfilling than what they do in their jobs, clicking through email, you know, sort of going through forms, you know, sort of working computer system that really treats them like an idiot. So I am sort of fascinated by this idea of games and play as a testament to our need for and, and love for the right kind of difficulty. But yes, I've also become very interested in this idea of, well, you know, what can't we get from a lot of sort of digital systems and tools? Um, I'm wary of making a fetish of unplugging because I think it's one of those things that can become a an indulgence for the privileged, if you like, to sort of, you know, go on holiday up some kind of a mountain um, without a mobile phone, where for most people, you know, perhaps it's simply not an option for them not to have their phone because of their job or their family or, or whatever sort of demand it. Um, and so perhaps that's why I favor the idea of almost sort of micro control within your day, having sort of form and structure and textures and kinds of time and, you know, using, using digital to fight digital. You know, I used, I use, um, you know, sort of tools like free program called freedom that was to shut down network connections for a bit. I try and sort of be aware of not having lots of windows open on the computer. I try and go to different rooms for different things and so on. So I've become interested in sort of trying to improve things on a kind of granular level rather than just saying you've got to go off and walk up a mountain. But um, I guess it has been a bit of a journey for me. But, you know, the, the underlying thing is perhaps this question of, you know, well, what, what does a human being look like when they are, you know, really you know, deeply satisfied when they're doing stuff that feels meaningful and enjoyable and that sort of challenges them as they like to be challenged? And... I think it's very clear that the what people get out of a lot of digital systems, a lot of jobs, a lot of their day-to-day experiences, is the opposite of that, that they are diminished and badly treated and sort of withered as human entities by the systems that they use. 
And that doesn't have to be the case. Video games are, in their way, an excellent example of why we do not have to accept human-machine interactions as a sort of diminishing of human satisfaction, challenge, interest, excitement, and so on. Because... I, th- I guess in your in your body of work, you spend a long time talking about this issue of personal identity and attention in the digital age. Um, and we've spoken a little bit in this conversation about how the digital age has challenged these, con- these concepts. But how do you recommend people go about cultivating a strong sense of identity um, and attention in the digital age? One of my favourite quotes about this came from um, a friend who was an author called Julian Goff, who um, is a very brilliant author, um, and among his other distinctions, wrote the ending to Minecraft, the game. Okay. And, um, and Julian was talking some time ago now about the process of kind of being a writer and looking online at, you know, at the entire world of words out there. And he said, you know, it's very disturbing to someone who would like to think that they are original because you look online and you see that you are part of this massive human ebb and flow Mm -hmm. that, you know, you are not as a writer, as a person coming up with original, unique stuff out of nothing that belongs entirely to you. That in fact, to a greater or lesser degree, you know, everything you do is preempted by other people it's part of part of this sea of humanity who are increasingly you know talking about and taking pictures of what they're doing and so when i look at this and you know think about i suppose it's a very good question of well what do we do you know part of it is embracing the fact that originality is a very is a very silly aspiration really you know that we are social beings that you know for our words and actions to have meaning for there to be such a thing as meaning we require context and precedent there is no vacuum there is nothing you're going to do that is just plucked original out of the air but i think what one can do is really look into the process of how you sort of make things your own how you make things belong to you how you take possession of things such that they are kind of powerful and exciting and you know generative of happiness and ideas and so on in your life so that you are more than just a kind of vector through which memes and expressions and images pass Mm -hmm. so you know one thing i try and do is almost indulge myself as if something kind of is is read deeply into things that interest me rather than trying religiously to stay up to date with everything if my fancy is tickled by particular thing that an author has written um i would just try and sort of give myself permission to dive into their work to sort of chase that tickle Mm -hmm. and to you know buy a lot more of their books and to sort of look around at other things that are suggested by that and to sort of follow the kind of serendipitous prompting of you know whatever it is that made that tickle me and appeal to me and again you know on a simple level with social media and so on on the one hand you can be someone who sort of passes stuff on so that you are just a kind of conduit for whatever it is that the world is talking about today and then of course you know just something 
millions of people are doing all the time. You're someone who kind of adds a bit, who thinks a bit, who puts their own spin on it, or who doesn't just sort of repeat all the time, who makes it belong to them. Mm-hmm. There was a lovely thing that the author Jaron Lanier once said in a talk he was giving at South by Southwest, and he stood up in front of the audience and said, while I'm giving this talk, I don't want you to tweet and blog and sort of immediately express yourselves online while I'm talking. I want you to turn off your devices, pay attention to me, and only do that afterwards. And I want you to do this not to make me feel respected, but to make you exist. Because if you listen first and remember and then only react afterwards, you will be in what you say. It will, so to speak, have had some time to percolate, a word I used before because I like coffee, through you and come out as more than just a kind of instantaneous rebroadcasting of whatever it is that happens to be in front of you. And I think, you know, on a physiological level, we have to understand that human memory, human selfhood, function in a profoundly different way to machine memory. Mm-hmm. And the machine memory should be fast and clean and instant and copyable and great and organized. Um, you know, the faster the better, the more the better. But human memory is a sort of, you know, perpetually reshuffled present tense in which emotions and beliefs are woven into the very fabric of the stuff. There's not some zone in our brain that just holds in ones and zeros everything in an equal data format. And so, you know, you carry yourself not only in your memories, but in how you remember. And, you you know, you carry what is unique about you, not in the fact that you are saying unprecedented things or being utterly original, but in the fact that you bring your personality uniquely to bear upon the common stuff of humanity. It is this issue, though, of being given the space and the time to consider information as it as it's given to us is is problematic in the digital age because there's so much information and everywhere we look you know there's there's information being beamed to us being broadcast to us very rarely are we on our own with our own thoughts and very rarely do we give ourselves that space to consider yeah it's it's really hard um and I don't want to be too pessimistic here, mm. you know, because people have been complaining about information overload so long as there has been such a thing as information. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have um, Romans uh, and Greeks <laughs> lamenting the fact that there's sort of too much out there. Although, of course, only literate Romans and only literate Greeks, which was a tiny proportion of the population. And I think one of the features of modernity, in a way, is that now kind of everyone everywhere is experiencing all the time the kind of opportunities and challenges that for most of human history, a small number of people sometimes experienced in some places. Um, And we're experiencing them all together. And I think in that all together thing, there is a lot of hope and excitement. You know, we are, we're really adaptable. We're really brilliant creatures. Uh, You know, we are dangerously adaptable, perhaps dangerously good at, you know, sort of swimming and swimming and swimming on through kind of ever more mountainous, seas of information and we're pretty pretty awesome at coming up with you know techniques for coping and making it manageable and turning things into sort of metadata into other orders of information which brings its own 
challenges, you know, on social media, for example, often what we can end up doing is effectively only paying real analytical attention to the trends, Mm. the data about the data, because, you know, the actual content itself is just grist to the mill that exists in order to drive the underlying trend. It's not about what you said. It's about how many retweets and likes you get. It's not about what your content actually is. It's about impact. So this is both an example of our extraordinary talent and, you know, something very challenging in exactly the way you were talking about to deal with information glut and information overload. And I do, you know, I like to try and be optimistic because I feel that historically technology tends to move far faster than sort of etiquettes and thinking um, and behaviors. But then we have a period of catch up. I am really fascinated to look at what you might call the kind of evolving etiquettes around, you know, a a culture of constant connectivity and information overload. When, you know, people, 10 years ago, you went to a meeting and in order to show off their power and up-to-dateness, someone might have a laptop and a phone, a very early tablet on the table. Now, to show off their power and sophisticatedness, people ostentatiously turn off their phone and give you their complete attention or you go to an artisan coffee shop where they have no Wi-Fi and people wear hemp or something like that. And I think on a smaller level, there's lots and lots of wonderful sort of micro etiquettes around phone use and company and signaling and so on, you know, sort of coming out that people, people want, you know, the same stuff. They, they, they get more of some things, but it doesn't mean they, you know, stop craving certain kinds of attention. Mm-hmm. When I'm feeling pessimistic, I think of this in terms of vulnerability, vulnerability and seduction of sort of danger. When I'm feeling optimistic, I think of this in terms of our flexibility and our ability to to find solutions together, to build patterns of behavior together. It's one of the things I do love. You know, if you have a problem now, it has never been more true to say that you do not need to know the answer yourself. You just need to know how to phrase the question. It only takes one person to, theoretically, to solve, to flag up, and then other people can find that truth. Equally, rumors and lies can spread, but you know, over time, those those searching for truths and solutions and methods, um, you know, have have never had it better, at least in principle. Mm. You wrote Fun Incorporated five years ago now, and. We've just been talking about, you know, this this whole idea of attention and how just important and finite a resource it is. But in the book, you talk about this idea of um, enhanced attention and specifically how video games can create windows of enhanced attention. Could you just explain what that is and if that maybe enhanced attention is, is a solution, you know, if we can cultivate that in the digital age? I think perhaps I was slightly guilty of sort of using a fancy phrase <laughs> right. um, to, to describe something less fancy. But what I ultimately mean by that is begins with the observation that, you know, remembering anything is in a sense information plus emotion. That is, that is the way we remember. And there's a lot of research showing that, you know, people will remember more when their emotional engagement is heightened. It doesn't mean necessarily terrifying people or, you know, sort of sending them into ecstasy, even a little bit. And when we forget stuff, it's because we are bored. You know, bored is an emotional state. It's because we are depleted, emotionally unengaged, and so on. And 
it's always been clear that you have an unprecedentedly granular control over, you know, what people are experiencing in things like a video game because you've got, you know, massive, massive amounts of sort of real-time information about what people are doing and what's going on. And, you know, from that, there comes this observation that if we want people, we want to teach people better, if we want to educate and inform people better, on the one hand, video games can be thought of as sort of engines for generating emotion. You know, they make people feel in certain ways. They achieve staggering amounts of engagement, like a lot of other online stuff, but perhaps even even better at their best. And similarly, if we want to get people remembering things, we need their emotional engagement. And so, you know, sort of recognizing that not all times are equal, that there are moments when people are you know, sort of highly engaged and excited and far more likely to sort of remember something and, you know, make it their own, so to speak, and sort of lay it, lay it down and possess it more deeply than if it had just washed over them in a totally kind of emotionally null environment. But this is quite exciting. Um, and I suppose the thing about this for me is that I'm not a sort of technological solutionist um, in that I don't think it's then about coming up with the ultimate video game that teaches people lots of stuff, or even necessarily the emotion, the, the sort of ultimate emotional technology of any kind. I think for me it's more a lesson that sort of games spell out, that games are often for me an interesting illustration of the inadequacies um, of other kinds of system design, not least a lot of education systems designs. You know, forget technology for a second, but if you look at the rewards and incentives and feedback and structure of, you know, educational assessment in a lot of countries in the world, it's not at all matched to the things we know about the psychology of engagement, mm. of making feedback meaningful and powerful and useful and positive in people's lives. We, broadly speaking, massively over-test students with kind of big punishing wrote tests while at the same time offering them massively too little you know sort of frequent meaningful positive feedback and again when people have a high level of emotional engagement in their learning it is most often because they are lucky enough to have a very good teacher of, of whom there are many but many good teachers i think are sort of fighting against the limitations of the systems within which they operate rather than being supported and empowered by them. A lot of your, um, you've spoken a couple of times about not wanting to be pessimistic um, in this interview and a lot, and all of your work is very forward-looking and very optimistic. And I just wanted to ask you like this last question, but are you optimistic in general about the future digital environment in which we're headed? Broadly speaking, I try to avoid predicting the future. That's a, that's I think that's a mugs game. Um, and of course, the best thing about the future is that it hasn't happened yet. So it could be all kinds of different things. Um, and that's a very fancy way, again, of saying that to be optimistic for me is as much as anything what I think of as a way of talking to the present that is most likely to create things to be optimistic about. Now, this is perhaps just a question of personality. So I greatly admire, for example, um, authors like Evgeny Morozov, who um, has written you know, very impactfully and brilliantly about 
much that is to be feared and deplored. I don't know whether he personally is an optimist or a pessimist. I think he's probably, in many ways, he would describe himself as a realist. Mm. Um, but that is that is the mode in which he writes, and he is extraordinarily good at it. And for me, the mode in which I write and seek to persuade tends to be more optimistic in the sense of talking about how I think good things can come out of this in celebrating much that, you know, that I feel celebratory about in terms of democratization and emancipation and ingenuity and so on. It is partly just a question of sort of choice and, you know, perhaps I will change and perhaps I should be more pessimistic. Um, I do genuinely at the moment feel, you know, sort of wildly unqualified to make predictions. I have hopes rather than predictions. And, you know, perhaps if my, you know, if my hopes are rewarded, great. If my hopes are not rewarded, perhaps I'll start writing in a different, different mode. But, um, as much as anything, you know, I hope to try to reach a broad audience and perhaps to, you know, sort of reach and persuade people who haven't thought about these things and who are not my natural audience. Mm. I do not want to just preach to the choir. And um, I think if I want to try and persuade people, I at least feel that dire warnings are not, not my thing, at least at least for now. <laughs> Great, Tom. Um, I think that. Thank you so much for for giving us your time and for speaking with us today. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, the easiest thing is to Google my lovely name, Tom Chatfield, <laughs> and then lots of stuff will pop up. Um, I, I have a website which is um, not at the moment the best or most up to date thingy in the world, um, but I'm on Twitter at Tom Chatfield, and um, my website is tomchatfield.net. And, you know, much of what I've written and said um, and so on is is to be found across the Internet. So I would invite people to go serendipitously and explore. And then if they disagree to uh, drop me a line on Twitter and we can and we can discuss it and maybe you'll change my mind. Fantastic. And I'm, I'll definitely put links to all of your books and your websites and your writing in the show notes. But um, Tom, Tom Chatfield, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that episode there with Tom Chatfield. There was so much interesting and important content there about the importance of video games, taking time off, of thinking differently about how we interact with technology. As promised, all the links to Tom's books and the other resources he mentioned will be provided in the show notes, so I recommend you check those out. If you find this content useful, then do let others know by giving us a five-star rating in iTunes because this helps us to provide more episodes for other people so that they can find the information that they need. Subscribe to the Digital Mindfulness Podcast in either iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud so these episodes can come straight to your device. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you.